1: Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon.
2: Good morning, Liz. Hope you're doing well today. Um, I am excited, as always, to welcome uh, Attorney Richard Courtney to the show. Rick has been very generous with his time to this show and other shows for MPB and Rick, would you please remind us of your background and your practice area? Sure. Uh, Professor Gershon, I I graduated from the venerable
3: Ole Miss Law School back in 1977 and went to work with my dad as a general civil practice lawyer in Jackson area, beginning in 78. I had daughters, twin daughters, born uh, 43 years ago tomorrow. Happy birthday, Melanie and Melissa, tomorrow. and uh, went in 1979 and melanie has a disability and melissa does not so that sort of began a new phase of life for me we began learning and my wife and i did about uh, disability programs and and public benefits and medicaid issues and uh, caregiving things and over those last few decades uh, had sort of honed my skills and knowledge base in estate planning helping ourselves and families plan your estate, but also with some special emphasis in the areas of special needs planning and then elder law, which is related to special needs planning. Because as I tell people, my daughter has some benefits through Medicaid. And if my mom, who's 92, uh, needed Medicaid for a nursing home, she would have to meet the same financial criteria that my daughter has for that program. So uh, elder law and special needs law wrapped around a general estate planning practice is what we do.
2: Well, and, uh, and you have uh, had spoken about special needs trust and, and, and you know, using those in the past, and, and those are great shows. And uh, today we're going to talk generally about estate planning. So what exactly is an estate plan?
3: Well, an estate estate planning is sort of a nebulous term and a lot of people ask that question you asked before. So uh, in some cases we've called it instead an asset protection plan because I like to call it a life plan because there's more to it. Uh, A will, as we'll discuss a little bit more in the show probably is just written instructions about who gets my stuff when I die. But there's more to a plan than that. Uh, estate planning also includes a planning for my possible incapacity from a disease or an illness or an injury. Uh, so who, how will my decisions be made? Who will make those for me? Asset protection, how do I protect and conserve the things that I have built and, and acquired for the benefit of myself or my family? It's family security is part of it as well. Because, you know, as I mentioned, I've got a daughter with a disability. Well, the way I plan is going to affect her security, her financial security, and uh, access to resources down the line. If I don't do some things right, I can, you know, adversely affect her eligibility for things that she might otherwise get. i sort of described to some clients, doing an estate plan is like building a house, we, put, we build a foundation, doing these documents and the planning steps and decisions, and then putting the documents in place is like putting in the foundation, the framing, and the walls. And then they are gonna fill that building with their family members, their resources, their assets, their activities, and all the things that make life enjoyable. But the structure is there to protect all of that. whatever transition or events come along. So that's an estate plan.
1: We are talking about estate plans today with one of our attorney friends who has been very generous to give of his time for this hour, Attorney Richard Courtney from the Courtney Law Firm. So if you have a question about uh, estate planning about wills or as he mentioned he also deals with elder law and special needs laws he can answer all those kind of questions. Send us your email questions to our address legal at MPbonline.org.
2: Well and uh, um, you know the thing that we have to ask Rick is, and I like that you call this life planning. By the way, happy birthday to your, to your daughters tomorrow. Um, yeah. Do I need a lawyer, or can I make my own estate plan? Well, I
3: do suggest that people get legal help with this because, as you and I know, we've studied the estate planning laws and rules and cases about things. Um, terms, words have meanings, And in the uh, area of wills and estates and trusts, uh, certain phrases have specific meanings. You and I shared a little bit earlier this week about uh, how some people think I'll leave things share and share alike to my kids, thinking that if one of my children dies before I do, their children will get their share. That's not what share and share alike means in the law. It means if one of my children dies, the other one gets it all. And that's not really how it sounds, but that's what the law says the phrase means. So because there are um, results okay, so of certain provisions and wording, that's why I think it, it's not good to make estate planning a DIY project. You know, <laughs> let's listen to the, the things on Wednesday you know, morning for the DIY thing and let the legal stuff come to you and the attorneys that oh, do that who can make sure it's going to work out the way that we uh, need it to work out.
1: And we have a call this morning from Greenwood. Let's go to Sherry. Sherry, we're glad you've called in in legal terms when we're talking about wills and estates. What's your comment or question?
4: I have a question. I I moved from Seattle, Washington to Tennessee, and I didn't have to pay alimony tax there. Where in Washington I was allotted three thousand a month alimony. Now in Mississippi, somebody told me I need to send in alimony tax separate from federal tax, uh, but they've never told me how much or where I'm supposed to send it. So I'm sending blank checks to Jackson every quarter, but I never get a receipt or hear from anybody.
3: I'm not sure yeah, what alimony. I'm I'm sorry, Sherry. I'm not sure what alimony tax is. That's sort of a new term for me. I'm not certain what you had in Washington or then Tennessee. I'm not sure what you're talking about, really. So I can't help much.
4: And, and it's like they call it like, a relationship I, check
2: now. I I got I, you know I would check on it only because uh, at, even at the federal level, people used to have to pay tax on alimony received and the person paying would get a deduction that actually went away with the tax cuts and jobs act in 2017. So now alimony is not taxable for federal tax purposes. So, and since the Mississippi tax return is based on the federal return, I have not heard that alimony remains taxable in Mississippi. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not, I could be wrong about that. So I would, I I don't know where you got that information, but I would double check on that
1: sherry we're glad that you've called in since you have a, a specific issue i know the mississippi bar website msbar.org has a great find a lawyer and you could maybe find an attorney that could take a you know could answer that question specifically for you and they also are different um on the msbar.org website if you Uh, need financial assistance they have uh, many avenues that you could explore that way I'm sorry this wasn't something that either of our attorneys were able to answer for you but uh, Rick you were talking about if an individual wanted to do their own will they would need to it would behoove them to get it looked over uh, by an attorney
3: Yes. In fact, uh, just yesterday, I was meeting with a couple who had done wills in a prior year, and we talked about another issue they were really concerned about, about uh, how to treat an adult child with a disability in the context of their estate plan. But in the process, I said, well, let's look at your will, see what you've got here to make sure it doesn't interfere with what we're talking about. And uh, their will had some provisions in it as to how they were leaving assets to their uh, disabled child and the other child they have. And when I read it to them and said, this is how that will work, they said, oh no, that's not what we meant. That's not what we intended to do. So we're needing to update and change that will. I, it looked like a will that they might have done themselves or that might be just a general practice attorney. And I used to do the same thing in my early career. I did not understand at that time all of the nuances that I understand now about what things mean in an yeah. estate planning context. And We also were able then to discuss, I said, well, that that's fine about what your will says, how your children will get your assets at your death. What if you become incapacitated? Okay, do you so have powers of attorney? And they looked right. at each other and said, no, I don't think we do. I said, well, let's talk about that. And they were glad to say, yep we do need to plan for that. We're older now and we may need help, you know, with somebody helping us do things. And I said, well, nobody else can talk to your bank, your insurance company, your IRA administrator, unless they've got written authority from you to do that. And that's how you can control that. They said, great, let's get it done. So that, you know, they wouldn't have noticed a lot of those issues had they just been trying to Google it or you know, read up on it themselves, they may have missed a lot of those things. And um, I think I've mentioned before, I have a little coffee mug on the side table in my conference room that says, please do not confuse your Google search with my law degree. And sometimes when clients say, well, I, I Googled me up a will, can you look at this and see if it's okay? Or, you know, I, I read about this online. I say, well, can you look over there at that little coffee mug for a second? and then they smile and I say, okay, now let's talk about the way it really is in Mississippi. I think you might have missed something. So that's why I think it's important to get good financial. I don't try to do my own finances. I don't try to fix my own car. I need the professionals that know how to do those things.
1: You can send us your questions by email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing wills and estate planning. And we love this topic on In Legal Terms because you love this topic. I'll tell you about some past shows covering wills next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
3: You already know MPB Think Radio is a direct result of donations from listeners like you. But instead of counting the size of your donation in dollars, how about axles? Trucks to motorcycles, cars, even 18-wheelers, your donated vehicle of any size helps fund the programs here on Think Radio. For more information on how to donate your vehicle, visit mpbonline.org/slash support.
1: is in legal terms. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at In legal terms. Mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. We have loved having our guest, attorney Richard Courtney, on the show. He talked about elder abuse in October twelfth of twenty twenty-one. He talked about being an executor on April thirteenth of twenty twenty one. He talked about special needs law on October 27th of 2020. And he talked about wills probate on May 14th of 2019. And this morning we are taking your general wills and estate and planning questions with our guest attorney, Richard Courtney. We've got a couple of lines open. So if you get a busy signal or you can't get through that's just because everybody else is talking but keep trying and uh, we'll get you on the show and uh, as we discussed during the break we're hope sherry really isn't sending signed blank checks through the mail that doesn't sound like a good idea to those of us at MPB let's go to Roger in Florence Roger we glad you've called in to in legal terms today what's your comment or question
6: oh what a great show and uh Rick, you know I admire what you do, and you and I have a few disagreements from time to time about people who want to make themselves look poor and thereby get Medicaid by setting up trusts. But I'm not calling about that today. You'll be relieved. Thank you for what you do. Uh, Your father I admired very much. Back in those days when I was on the bench and I was trying to clean up some messes, I discovered a statute that said, and I don't know if it still exists, so this is one of my questions, a statute that required chancery court to appoint in every county something called in the statute a county administrator now that term has been used now for unit system uh, people who are in charge of roads and stuff like that a a, a county administrator so trying to do my job uh, I uh, tapped poor Jim Bobo, who was an upcoming bright young lawyer, to be the county administrator in the county where I where I was uh, a judge. And uh, he didn't thank me because the statute made no provision for how that person would be paid and it required the county administrator to probate the estate of every person who died in the county. Now, I don't know what's happened to that statute. When poor Jim uh, began to try to do his job and of course when people die they don't necessarily have anything and you don't even know what they have until you probate an estate. So I guess my question to simplify will be what happened to that statute and then secondly is there a statutory requirement, a legal requirement in Mississippi? For a person's estate, large, small, non-existent, whatever, for a person's estate to be probated after that person dies.
1: Okay, Roger, we're going to let Rick Courtney mull about that. President Biden is about to speak in the, at the White House about the Russian oil embargo, so we're going to go to that.
7: Congress and I believe in the country. America's have rallied support have rallied to support their Ukrainian people and made it clear. We will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war This made we made this decision in close consultation with our allies and our partners around the world particularly in Europe Because a united response to Putin's aggression has been my overriding focus to keep all NATO and all of the EU and our allies totally united We're moving forward with this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European — all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. So we can take this step when others cannot. But we're working closely with Europe and our partners to develop a long-term strategy to reduce their dependence on Russian energy as well. Our teams are actively discussing how to make this happen, and today, we remain united. We remain united in our purpose to keep pressure mounting on Putin and his war machine. This is a step that we're taking to inflict further pain on Putin, but there will be cost as well here in the United States. I said I would level with the American people from the beginning, and when I first spoke to this, I said defending freedom is going to cost — it's going to cost us as well in the United States. Republicans and Democrats alike understand that. Republicans and Democrats alike have been clear that we must do this. Over the last week, I've spoken with President Zelensky several times to hear from him about the situation on the ground and to consult and continue to consult with uh, our European allies and about U.S. support for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. Thus far, we've provided more than $1 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. Shipments of defensive weapons are arriving in Ukraine every day from the United States. And we, the United States, are the ones coordinating the delivery of our allies and partners of similar uh, weapons from Germany to Finland to the Netherlands. We're we're, We're working that out. We're also providing humanitarian support for the Ukrainian people, both those still in Ukraine and those who have fled safely to a neighboring country. We're working with humanitarian organizations to surge tens of thousands of tons of food, water, and medical supplies into Ukraine. And with more on the way, over the weekend, I sent Secretary Blinken to visit uh, our border between — the border between Poland and Ukraine and to Moldova to see what the situation was firsthand and report back. General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of our Defense Department, is also what was also in europe meeting with his counterparts and allies on nato's eastern flank to reassure them those countries bordering russia nato countries that we will keep our nato commitment a sacred commitment article of article 5. the vice president harris is going to be traveling to meet with our allies in poland and romania later this week as well I've made it clear that the United States will share in the responsibility of caring for the refugees so the costs do not fall entirely on the European countries border in Ukraine. And yesterday, I spoke with my counterparts in France, Germany, and the United Kingdom about Russia's escalating violence against Ukraine and the steps that we're going to take, together with our allies and partners around the world, to respond to this aggression. We are enforcing the most significant package of economic sanctions in history, and it's causing significant damage to Russia's economy. It has caused Russian economy to fight, frankly, crater. The Russian ruble is now down to 50 percent by 50 percent since Putin's announced his war. One ruble is now worth less than one American penny. One ruble is less than one American penny and preventing Russia's central bank from propping up the ruble and to keep its value up. They're not going to be able to do that now. We cut the Russians' largest banks from the international financial system and it has crippled their ability to do business with the rest of the world. In addition, we're choking off Russia's access to technology, like semiconductors that are and, – uh, and sap its, uh, its economic strength and weaken its military for years to come. Major companies are pulling out of Russia entirely, without even being asked, not by us. Over the weekend, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, they all suspended their services in Russia, all of them. Joining a growing list of American and global companies from Ford to Nike to Apple, they've suspended their operations in Russia. The U.S. Stock Exchange has halted trading of many Russian securities. And the private sector is united against Russia's vicious war of choice. The U.S. Department of Justice has assembled a dedicated task force to go after Russian — the crimes of Russian oligarchs. And we're joining with our European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets, and all their ill-begotten gains to make sure that they share in the pain of Putin's war. These, by the way, are giant yachts. You put some of them in your press. I mean, some of them are I think I read one was over 400 feet long. I mean, it's — this is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The decision today is not without cost here at home. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. In coordination with our partners, we've already announced that we're releasing 60 million barrels of oil from our joint oil reserves. Half of that, 30 billion — million, excuse me — is coming from the United States. And we're taking steps to ensure the reliable supply of global energy. We're also going to keep working with every tool at our disposal to protect American families and businesses. Now, let me — let me say this. To the oil and gas companies and to the finance firms that pack them, we understand Putin's war against the people of Ukraine is causing prices to rise. We get that. That's self-evident. But, 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 it's no excuse to exercise excessive price increases or padding profits or any kind of effort to exploit this situation or or American uh, consumers exploit them. Russia's aggression is costing us all. And it's no time for profiteering or price gouging. I want to be clear about what we'll not tolerate. But I also want to acknowledge those firms and oil and gas industries that are pulling out of Russia and joining other businesses that are leading by example. This is a time when we have to do our part and make sure we're not taking, we're not taking advantage. Look, let me be clear about uh, two other points. First, it's simply not true that my administration or policies are holding back domestic energy production. That's simply not true. Even amid the pandemic, companies in the United States pumped more oil during my first year in office than they did during my predecessor's first year. We're approaching a record levels of oil and gas production in the United States, and we're on track to set a record of oil production next year. In the United States, 90% of onshore oil production takes place on land that isn't owned by the federal government. And of the remaining 10 percent that occurs on federal land, the oil and gas industry has millions of acres leased. They have 9,000 permits to drill now. They could be drilling right now, yesterday, last week, last year. They have 9,000 to drill onshore that are already approved. So let me be clear. Let me be clear. They are not using them for production now. That's their decision. These are the facts. We should be honest about the facts. Second, this crisis is a stark reminder. To protect our economy over the long term, we need to become energy independent. I've had numerous conversations over the last three months with our European friends about how they have to be- wean themselves off of us, Russian oil. It's just not — it's just not tenable. It should motivate us to accelerate the transition of clean energy. This is a perspective that our European allies share and the f- a future where together we can achieve greater independence. Loosening environmental regulations or pulling back clean energy investment won't, let me explain, won't, will not lower energy prices for families. But transforming our economy to run on electric vehicles powered by clean energy with tax credits to help American families winterize their homes and use less energy, that will, that will help. And if we can, if we do what we can, it will mean that no one has to worry about the price of a gas pump in the future. That'll mean tyrants like Putin won't be able to use fossil fuels as weapons against other nations. And it will make America a world leader, manufacturing and exporting clean energy technologies of the future to countries all around the world. This is the goal we should be racing toward. Over the last two weeks, the Ukrainian people have inspired the world. And I mean that in a literal sense. They've inspired the world with their bravery, their patriotism, their defiant determination to live free. Putin's war, Putin's war has caused enormous suffering and needless loss of life of women, children, everyone in Ukraine. Both Ukraine and, I might add, Russians. Ukrainian leaders, as well as leaders around the world, have repeatedly called for a ceasefire for humanitarian relief, for real diplomacy. But Putin seems determined to continue on his murderous path, no matter the cost. Putin's now targeting cities and has been targeting cities and civilians, schools, hospitals, apartment buildings. Last week, he attacked the largest nuclear power plant in Europe with an apparent disregard for the potential of triggering a nuclear meltdown. He has already turned 2 million Ukrainians into refugees. Russia may continue to grind out its advance at a horrible price, but this much is already clear. Ukraine will never be a victory for Putin. Putin may be able to take a city, but he'll never be able to hold the country. And if we do not respond to Putin's assault on global peace and stability today, the cost of freedom and to the American people will be even greater tomorrow. So we're going to continue to support the brave Ukrainian people as they fight for their country. And I call on Congress to pass the $12 billion Ukraine assistance package that I have asked them for uh, of late. Ukrainian people are demonstrating by their physical courage that they are not about to just let Putin take what he wants. That's clear. They'll defend their freedom, their democracy, their lives. And we're going to keep providing security assistance, economic assistance, and humanitarian assistance. We're going to support them against tyranny oppression, violent acts of subjugation, people everywhere, and I I think it's maybe even surprised some of you all, people everywhere are speaking up for freedom. When the history of this war is written, Putin's war on Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger. And God bless all those heroes in Ukraine. And now I'm off to Texas. Thank you very, very much. I know there's a lot of... I I know... I know there's a lot of questions, but there's a lot more that has to be made clear, and I'm going to hold on that until we get more information. Thank you. Appreciate it.
8: That was President Biden speaking just now from the Roosevelt Room in the White House. He announced— For their action against Russia, he is banning all imports of Russian oil. The president said, quote, we will not be part of subsidizing Russia's war. The president also said at this point the United States has provided more than $1 billion in security assistance to Ukraine and that defensive weapons are arriving for the Ukrainian military every day. We're going to talk about the implications of this latest sanction with NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow and chief business correspondent Scott Horsley, Welcome to you both.
0: Good to be with you you there.
8: I'm going to start with you, Scott Horsley. Explain uh, what this ban means in practical terms.
0: Well, it doesn't mean... A heck of a lot in practical terms. Uh, Russia is a major player in the world oil market, but it's not a a major supplier to the United States. Uh, Just to give you an example, last week the U.S. imported 3.6 million uh, barrels of petroleum from Canada, about half a million each from Saudi Arabia and Mexico, uh, zero from Russia. Uh, Even before the war, Russia was a a pretty trivial supplier to the United States. So as a practical matter, uh, the U.S. turning its back on Russian oil, is not a huge big deal. Uh, the Europeans who are much more dependent on on Russian oil. Uh, as the president acknowledged, in many cases won't be able to do this, although this has certainly been a wake-up call for Europe, and they're talking about weaning themselves off that dependence on Russian energy. But that's not going to happen overnight. They're not going cold turkey.
8: Right. I want to talk about all those things in more depth. But first, uh, Scott Detrow, as Scott Horsley just mentioned, this is mostly a symbolic move. This isn't going to move the needle. Then why make it now?
5: Well, I think because uh, Biden is trying to keep to this line, and it it is sincerely a key part of his approach to this war in Ukraine, it's not just public relations, of maximizing economic pressure on Russia. And the U.S. is doing that because the U.S. does not want to get involved militarily in this because many people see that as World War III. Nobody wants that. So maximum economic pressure. It's very hard to say you are putting maximum economic pressure on Russia when you are not touching the main function of its economy, and that's oil and gas drilling. So here, the United States is doing what it can to put some pressure there. You have seen some major companies follow suit. Shell announced this morning, and Shell is the the biggest oil supplier to Europe, that it will no longer buy Russian oil and gas today, taking a lead from the U.S. government. But Biden was pretty realistic in the statement, saying he understands that European allies cannot take this step because they do not have the domestic production and because they deeply deeply rely on Russian oil and gas to keep their economies running.
8: What would it take, Scott Horsley, for European allies to be able to make a similar move? I mean, how does the U.S. help shore up their energy needs so that they could start to reduce their, their long dependence on Russian oil?
0: Well, we have begun doing that. Uh, for example, the United States has been exporting a lot of liquid uh, natural gas to Europe, which, which helps to reduce their reliance on, on Russian gas. Uh, we could uh, send more more crude oil. Uh, the, the, there are limits. There are physical limits on how much liquid natural gas can be exported and imported right now. It's not as fungible as oil is. Uh, so, again, it, trying to replace uh a large quantity of energy from Russia is not something that's going to happen in weeks or even months, but it is something that could happen over the over the longer term. And and I think you are seeing a commitment from the Europeans to make that kind of transformation. I think they have uh, they have seen the, the the challenge that comes with being dependent on Russia for energy.
8: Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Detrow, uh, I noticed the president make a shift. Right, yeah. he's he's talking about this latest sanction uh, banning Russian oil from the US. And and then if you listen carefully, all of a sudden he was talking about his domestic agenda and energy independence, right?
5: Absolutely. I mean, we have been talking for about a year now of how the biggest political vulnerability for the Biden White House is inflation, right? Even as the economy has gotten better on so many fronts, inflation is at a uh, decades-long high. That's a big political downside. Biden knows that, and he knows that this is going to contribute to higher gas prices, one of those places where inflation is front and center. So you heard him, first of all, say, look, I'm going to level with the American people. Gas is going to be more expensive because of this move, but it is worth it. To put pressure on Russia. Then he got a bit defensive, um, taking the time to refute criticism you've seen from Republicans of recent days, saying, It is simply not true that my policies are cutting back on domestic oil production. And then you had this strange moment or a president who campaigned for the White House saying that he wanted to end, you know, carbon emissions, net carbon emissions in the U.S. economy in the coming decades, which would basically mean moving entirely away from oil and gas. Somebody who has done more than anyone really to to get the electric vehicle market up and moving, Mm. bragging about how much oil is produced in the United States, saying it's the number one supplier of oil to the world, more oil pumped the first year of the Biden presidency than the last year of the Trump presidency. That was really Uh, an interesting moment. And then I'll just very quickly add that he then pivoted, saying this is a reason, even more of a reason, to pass the big green energy policy that Biden has pushed for, but is right now totally stalled in Congress.
8: Scott Horsley, what did you hear in there? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he, Biden is right about that. Now, it's certainly true that the fossil fuel lobby has not gotten everything they've wanted from this administration. They'll, they'll use this opportunity to say we need to have more drilling on federal lands or more offshore drilling or to restart the Keystone XL pipeline to bring uh, oil from the Canadian tar sands, all, all the things that are on their perennial wish list. Uh, this is an opportunity to campaign for those things. But it is certainly true that... Uh, Oil production in the U.S. is expected to hit a record high uh, next year. Uh, And to the extent that oil production has fallen since its pre-pandemic levels— that's a consequence of decisions, deliberate decisions that the oil producers have made, uh, not to spend the kind of money that they that they had been spending, and to take advantage of these prices and 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 reap some profits. Their investors had been had been complaining that they were being too undisciplined and flooding the market with too much oil. So they've gotten discipline, and that's what's keeping that oil on the ground right now, not the policies of the Biden administration. That said, the U.S. is never going to be able to pump enough oil to have. You independent control of oil prices on a global market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when the president says he wants to wean the country off of those fossil fuels, uh, he's, he's got economics on his side there as well.
8: I mean, isn't it true that the White House is considering reevaluating sanctions against Venezuela in order to open up supplies from there?
0: That's right. And, of course, if uh, they are successful in reviving the Iran nuclear deal, that would put more oil on the, the world market. Now, neither Venezuela nor Iran uh, could make up by themselves for the oil that would be lost if, if Russia were actually, actually taken out of the market, and neither of those supplies would come online in a, in a, you know, overnight either.
8: So speaking of profits, uh, the president also warned oil companies and others against price gouging right now. What ability does he have to rein that in in the wake of this new this new ban on Russian oil?
0: You know, price gouging is um, is, is a, a charge that's always thrown around when the price of uh, gasoline goes high, and, and I don't think it's, it's ever been substantiated in any, any major sort of way. Uh, the, the White House had already called for an investigation by the Federal Trade Commission even, even before this war when we saw gas prices climbing. Uh, but look, oil is a global commodity. Uh, crude oil prices are way up, and, and gasoline prices have, have moved up predictably in line with the price of crude oil.
8: Well, then, is that just— the president trying to, uh, you know, save himself from domestic political outcry about high gas (laughs) prices—
5: That, that's, exactly, that's exactly what it is, and I recall the last time uh, gas prices really spiked, Biden uh, went out and, and threatened in federal investigations of corporate price gouging. That didn't really do anything. What brought the price of, of gas shooting back down to normal was the fact that the Omicron variant then came and people wanted to travel a lot less. This is a global market that is highly responsive to supply and demand, and even though Russia uh, contributes a relatively small amount of, of American oil production, If the trend continues of the rest of the world isolating Russia more and more, and if if Russian oil is not getting out to markets, that is going to just have an enormous short-term impact on on the economy.
8: I mean, we can't ignore that the midterm elections are coming up, and the president talked about, quote, Putin's price hike. Mm -hmm. Scott Detrow, how concerned are Democrats (laughs) that they're going to get blamed for high prices at the gas pump ahead of November elections?
5: Well, on one hand, that is, that is Democrats' top concern. I've, I've talked to a lot of people running for office who are just very frustrated with how much the Biden White House minimized inflation uh, all of last year, was late to take it seriously, and has not really come up with a comprehensive way to address the issue, even though, of course, the White House, in all circumstances, has relatively little control over a, a big issue like inflation. On the other hand, though— uh, npr 's last poll gave Biden an eight point jump in his approval rating you're seeing similar trends from from other pollsters out there. He had been sliding and sliding and sliding from midsummer on and Americans seem at the moment to be behind biden 's response to Russia. They are backing the way that he has organized allies to to put an economic crunch on russia and if he is successful at framing this as you know putin's pi- price spike is, is is what he was saying maybe that will alleviate this a little bit or, or have people think perhaps that is the reason and not broader Biden economic policies that are leading to high, higher gas prices. But that is about six or seven degrees of speculation from now. So <laughs> I'm not going to make any firm statements on what could happen with voters.
8: Right. So, President Biden made a point to say he'd spoken with Ukraine's President Zelensky a couple of times over the past week, that humanitarian aid is on its way, that the U.S. is prioritizing the humanitarian crisis. But this is still a, a very difficult political problem for President Biden to have this crisis happen on his watch. I'll just ask for closing remarks briefly from both of you. Uh, Scott Detrow.
5: I think the next thing to look for in terms of how the administration is handling this crisis is this high profile trip that Kamala Harris is taking to Poland and Romania in the coming days. This will be the the biggest moment of the administration dealing with European allies taking on taking on Russia. So looking to that, mm-hmm. Asma Khalid will be covering this for us.
0: Scott Horsley. And we've got gasoline prices hitting an all-time high in the U.S., and we may not have seen the ceiling yet.
8: NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow, chief business correspondent Scott Horsley, we appreciate your analysis and context. This has been special coverage of President Biden's announcement of a ban against Russian oil imports into the United States as retribution for Russia's war in Ukraine. I'm Rachel Martin, and you've been listening to special coverage from NPR News. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
1: And now we will finish up our hour where we're talking with Rick Courtney, attorney. Hey, wait, did I say this is in legal terms on MPB Think Radio? We're talking about wills and estate uh, before. We heard from the president, Mr. Courtney. We had Roger from Florence call in, wanting to know a couple of questions about uh, county administrators and something else. Can you uh, give him his answer?
3: Uh, yes, uh, Roger. I looked it up while the president was speaking, and uh, Section 19 of the code, Title 19, deals with county administrators and their general duties to do county and financial administration things. But... In the probate section of our code, section 91-7-79 does say that the chancery uh the chancellor, chancery judge shall appoint a county administrator who would have the responsibility of administering or probating an estate of someone who dies either in the state or out of the state where they have property in the state and no one else comes forward to probate that so there is a county administrator who would do those things and it's still in the law
1: thank you for checking on that for us rick we're going to go to the phones and talk with deborah from greenwood deborah you get a prize for hanging on the line through the president's announcement Uh, what is your comment or question for attorney rick courtney
4: thank you so much for the opportunity, and I absolutely love Mississippi Public Broadcasting. My question is, I have an irrevocable trust in California, established in California, and I've acquired the properties in Mississippi. And I'm wondering, because the laws are different, do I have to have a trust established in Mississippi because of the properties here? Because my trust is old. It's about 20 years old. I'd like to know, do I need to establish a new trust in the state of Mississippi because the laws are different?
3: Uh, Deborah, you don't have to have a new trust for property in a different state than where your original trust was. Uh, One reason we suggest to clients who do set up a trust is if they own property in more than one state, set up a trust here if they live in Mississippi then put all the title to all those pieces of property in the other state in that trust, and that can help avoid a probate later on and and put all those properties under the administration of that trust. So, not knowing what your trust in California says, uh, I would assume that you could title the Mississippi property into that trust, and your California trust would own the Mississippi property as well as the California property. There may be some income tax issues related to that state-to-state that I don't know without looking into it more specifically.
4: Okay, so so when I do speak to the trust establishers in California, then that's what I should – those are the questions regarding the taxes and things like that that I should become more knowledgeable of.
3: Well, yes, the trustee – and I'm I'm assuming from the way you phrased it, you're not the trustee – um, but if the uh, trustee wants to take title to the Mississippi property, it would be in the trust. Then it would be up to the trustee to determine whatever tax effect that has for the irrevocable trust.
4: Okay. 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 And and I when I say that I'm – when I established the trust, I went to a company, you know, they set it up, and uh, it is my trust, but – someone that when i when i established it in california i established it through an you know a business there and i haven't contacted them regarding my properties here but i i didn't know if i needed to establish one here because the you know the laws are different in mississippi regarding those things as opposed to what's in california
3: but i i it's generally not necessary to have a separate trust in each state where you own property. One trust could own the properties in various states as a general matter, uh, but that's something to discuss with your trustee.
1: Thanks, Deborah. Mew, we appreciate you hanging on, and we also appreciate Sue from Beaumont hanging on. Sue, we're glad you've called in, to in legal terms today when we're talking about wills and estates. What's your comment or question?
4: I'd like to ask you a quick question. Uh, How often can you change your will in
3: estate planning? (laughs) Oh, you can change it every week if you want to. Oh, really? Uh, (laughs) I I, I had a time who I had been made administrator, executor of his will one time, and then later at his death, I was actually at home, and I walked over there, and I saw his two daughters and his best friend sitting around waiting for the coroner to come, and and I said, Well, I, I think I'm the executor and I'm going to have to take control of this house and assets under his will. They looked at each other and smiled. And one of them said, Bubba, how many times did daddy change his will since the one that put Rick in there? He said, At least three that I know of. So <laughs> I said, Well, see, I wasn't the executor. It got me out of a job, the, wrapping that estate up. But that's just to illustrate that. There's no limit on how often you can revise or update your will, but you know it's not a good idea to do it just recreationally.
4: No, Mm-mm. I was trying to find a a caregiver that that would that would take my my uh, status for payment.
3: Well, I mean that. Ask around about good lawyers who've helped other friends of yours with their wills and so forth. That's the way I would go about it. Referrals are often the best way to find someone who's done a good job for someone
2: else.
4: But thank you.
2: You're welcome. And I, and I would add, you know, one thing, Rick, I'm sure you, you share this with your clients. I mean, I, if you have lots of wills and you've done lots of wills, make sure uh, that you let somebody know where your last will is. You, know, some, you cannot keep it secret. you got to let somebody know where it is. got to let somebody know where your safe deposit box is and who, you know, how, could, how they can get the key, what your accounts are. Uh, and if you have crypto or anything like that, you've got to give somebody access to that information.
1: Oh, we talked about that on Money Talks. If you die without giving anyone your uh, uh, digital currency passwords, that stuff's just going to float out there and nobody gets it.
3: Yeah, that's right. And what he says about uh, having too many similar documents floating around, um, you know, that that can be a real problem later on. Too. You want to make sure that you destroy prior wills um, once you do a new will, that you destroy all those prior ones. And that's one reason we tell clients, they come in and say, I'd like to do an amendment to my will, a codicil. I say, yes, you can do a codicil. We prefer to just do a new will because if you do a one-page codicil that just amends one paragraph, you have to attach it to your original will. It could get torn off later, lost, and you're back with the original will terms before, and that wouldn't be a good result. So we say, you've got to have it signed the same way as an original will. Just do a new will and tear the old one up.
1: Well, this has been an interesting show, but uh, we're going to have Rick Courtney. We're going to see if we can impose upon his good humor and get him to volunteer to come be part of our show uh, in the in the future, maybe in a, in a couple of weeks, certainly maybe by April. We would love to have him in because usually this is such a busy show because Mississippians are interested and have lots of questions. Rick, we are so thankful that you could be with us this morning. Thank you.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Enjoyed it.
1: That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Thank you, Jay White. Thank you, Java Chapman, for helping us get our show on. But thank you so very, very much to Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Please join us Tuesday, 10 a.m. Central, for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. And you can also find quite a few of our other Will and Estate podcasts on our podcasting platform or on our website inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. legal terms, dot Thank you. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.